Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. You're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. This is part two of our chat with uh, Phillips Payson O'Brien, whose sensational book, How the War Was Won, has got us, well, I mean, it's blown my mind. You, you talk in the book a lot about the, about, uh, about the, uh, uh, the strategic bombing of Japanese cities and Tokyo and what a shock it is initially. And then, the, and then they ad- the, the, the Japanese adapt to it. And, even, even, and because the population is so mobilised, even though hundreds of thousands of people are killed, um, uh, in this area bombing, it, th- that actually where you put it on the ledger of how effectively it's attacking the Japanese economy, because mining, after all, is the thing that the Air Force don't want to do, because there's, there's, no, there's no sort of props in it, is that there's no glamour in, in mining. It, it's not glamorous, and it's, but it's incredibly effective if what you're talking about is maximum effect for your effort. But, but, but even, even with, I mean, and obviously, we're inevitably, it, when you talk about the, the war in the Far East, you end up having, we, we end up on the atom bomb, is that strategic bombing of the cities isn't having the effect it's appearing to have. But then, of course, suddenly you get, you, you get the two atom bombs and a, and a moment, the moment changes. And it, it, is, is it, I mean, it's the eternal question, isn't it? Because there are two sides of the atom bomb debate. The people who say it's unnecessary because it's wantonly cruel. And then the people who say, well, absolutely, there was absolutely no choice. And the, the Americans did the right thing. Where, where, I mean, where do you, where do you sit in? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, part of I've been influenced because I've just written a biography of Admiral William Leahy, who's the president's chief of staff and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Yeah. And he has an extraordinary position. He's the most senior American military officer um, at that point in the war, first five-star officer. And yet he's the most violently opposed to the atom bomb. But he's also opposed to the invasion of Japan. And it is an interesting, you know, what, what Leahy said is, look, we have won the war. It's the summer of 1945. Yeah. War's over. Japan is cut off from the sea. It can't live it cannot fight so japan will have to surrender now we have two options or three options the first option is to uh, use the atom bomb if that works we should not use it and i have to say the most effective argument he he uses and i and i don't i I think this is one the backers have to, to to deal with is this weapon is worse than poison gas and we wouldn't use poison gas so why would we use it we could have dropped poison gas on Japanese cities, German cities, at any point in the war, that was considered a more horrible weapon. Yet here we are using something, and by the way, we, they thought could poison the soil for a thousand years. You know, they didn't actually know mm. the, how long-lasting the impact of the radiation would be. And you know, Leahy's argument is if we don't use poison gas, then how can we use this? Someone explained to me why this is morally superior when it is a, a poisonous weapon. That's a very, I mean, that's a very powerful initial point, isn't it? I mean, that's, uh, and one that, one that when you, you know, when you, when you read, because this is a debate that ends up in newspapers and all over, when you read, you never see that really put, put, put into the picture, uh, uh, do you? I mean, uh, right. So, so his first. So that's his first thing. We don't use. We well, the other use So the other two options we, we are. We can invade, but no, we shouldn't invade because that will be very bloody. He's like, he, we, we've just yeah, seen. For everybody. So you just let them stew in their own mire that of economic... Basically, economic. the war will go on for longer. 
maybe another six months. He, he doesn't really think it'll go on for that much longer. But, you know, it'll be three months, six months, at most nine months. Many Japanese might die. There could be starvation. But Japan is doomed. And you know, why invade? They want us to invade. The Japanese want the United States to invade to have a really bloody battle as their last chance to get good terms. You don't invade. You don't drop the atom bomb. You just wait and starve them out. And so that is, that's his yeah. option. I've got to say, I find that an incredibly convincing Well, I mean, argument. more Japanese might have died. And that's the fascinating uh, moral yeah. thing. If you're talking about numbers of death, under Leahy's yeah. way, very few Americans would have died. But many Japanese more might have died than died in the Anabom. So if you're talking about, if you have yeah. mass famine throughout, you know, Japan is a heavily populated island. I think sometimes people don't realize how many people there are in Japan. I think there's about 80 million people in Japan in the second, which is the size of Britain. Huge yeah, population in a, yeah. a relatively small area. If famine takes control, you could have a million people die quite quickly. So under Leahy's system, there might have been more deaths than, than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So if you believe Japanese deaths are the key thing, the atom bomb might save them. But he said it's simply not worth it for us to drop the first atom bomb. He believes very much in, a, in an ethical message. Mm. The great message we can send to the world is we have developed this and we chose not to use it. It's so horrible. We choose dear, not to use dear it. Dear God. Uh, but Truman simply can't. Truman doesn't have yep. that kind of moral qualm. And Truman wants to end the war as soon as possible. His view is if a, we've developed this weapon, if they find out we developed this weapon and I didn't use it and the war went on for six more months, every American who died, their parents will hate me and you know, that this will end up being devastating to me. So if we have the weapon, we have to use it. And, and, and Leahy said even Roosevelt, man, Leahy was really close to Roosevelt. He's one of Roosevelt's oldest friends. And he was trying to convince Roosevelt not to use the weapon. And he was like, you know, if push came to shove, Roosevelt probably might, might very well have used it as well. You should t tell us a bit more about Leahy, though, because he's such an interesting character and he's had such a fascinating career. And yet he is a kind of forgotten man of World War II, isn't he? Despite his, uh, the enormity of his position. And, and Absolutely. He's one of those. It's a bit like that moment where when I was a graduate student and I found that statistic that made no sense. When I started writing how the war was won and I was really interested in the application of grand strategy and how the Western allies decided where to send their air and sea power, I started looking at the structure of decision making. And you know, most people here... Allen Brook or George Marshall, and in the American terms, Marshall is the senior person. But actually, if you look at the chain of command, Marshall, and by the way, I, I was told this by a librarian at the Marshall Library down in Lexington, Virginia. He said Marshall probably saw Roosevelt alone fewer than five times in the war. Probably saw him alone fewer what? than What? Basically, Roosevelt oh. didn't like Marshall. He found Marshall to be very stiff. They didn't get along. He never invited Marshall to Hyde Park. Wow. Marshall, in fact, the only time he was invited to Hyde Park was Roosevelt's funeral. Uh, he kept it. He wanted an invitation. What? He never got it. So this idea that Marshall was somehow guiding the American strategy seemed odd when you look at the, Mar the Roosevelt-Marshall relationship. And then you look at the chain of command and actually Marshall's below Leahy. There's this guy called William Leahy who is... By the, Roosevelt makes him a five-star the day before Marshall, so Marshall must salute him. Um, you know, Leahy is the first five-star, but he's the president's chief of staff. A, pre, a special role is created for him, and he's the first yep. chairman of the Joint Chiefs. This is an extraordinarily powerful position. You know, he, he's chairman of the Joint yep. Chiefs and the president's chief of staff, and the more you boil down to it, he's also Roosevelt's friend from 1913. So they have such a yep. close relationship that actually Leahy doesn't have to write a lot down. 
That's the uh, Marshall has to write these memoranda because he can't get to Roosevelt. Leahy sees Roosevelt every day. He provides him his morning briefing. He you know, goes with him on every trip. They spend hundreds of days together. Um, they watch movies together in the evening. Wow! I mean, but, I just hadn't appreciated that well, at all. Well, that's partly Leahy's nature. I've got Leahy's. I've got Leahy's book. It's so boring. It's such a, basically Leahy. Leahy is an, <laughs> he's a boring writer, and the he he writes the dullest, longest diary. I mean, the diary has been the, useful for me because it's so long and boring. No one else used it really. I read the darn thing, five thousand pages. Ninety nine percent of it is boring, but then there's just pieces of gold, <laughs> a few pieces of gold scattered throughout it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so when you're doing his biography, how, where are you getting? Well, again, the, the other thing because there's never been a Leahy Library, like a Marshall Library, it's but around. But he has, and I'll let anyone who wants to do it. No. He's got th- three collections of papers, um, and they're they're his presidential papers as chief of staff are in the the Navy Yard in Washington. They're great, but they get, they're not in mm-hmm. the Library of Congress and they're not wow. in the National Archives. So people don't often go to the Navy Yard. But those okay, ended yeah. up being mostly, I would say, his papers from his period of chief of staff. His diary is in the Library of Congress in the Manuscripts Division, so that's separate. His papers as chairman of the Joint Chiefs were, I think, basically lost in the National Archives till I did that diary. The National Archives in America is the worst organized major archive in the world, and I say that, you know, as an American. Oh, God, don't, it's, even, it's don't even go there, Phil. It's a but nightmare. But and that helped because there had been basically these chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff files which you had to, I had to go through about six binders to find them, and no one had ever used them before. I don't think anyone had ever used them, and they're Leahy's sort of personal collection. That's so they, amazing, they came out it? of his Pentagon it's office, incredible. and they ended up in the National Archives. And then his personal papers, like his letters, ended up in the Wisconsin Historical Society. So that's why no one's really been able to do any research <gasps> on him. Is it? They're all over because the they're all over the place. So how how has this how has this happened? Does, does Marshall just better? Well, at I think post the big thing spin? is Truman uh, loves Marshall. I mean, if you if you look at the by yeah. the time Roosevelt dies, and this is my favorite. And by the way, I get a lot of angry emails from both Eastern Fronters and Marshall fans. Those are the people. Name me one fight that George Marshall wins in the Second World War. <laughs> I can't think of one. He wants he doesn't want to do torch in 1942. He wants a large army. He wants to yeah. invade France in 42, 43. Yeah. I can't think of a single fight George Marshall yeah. wins. Basically, the United States, as long as Roosevelt is alive, Marshall loses. He loses every major fight when it comes to strategy of the Second World War. And I've, I try to ask Marshall, name me one major fight over strategy Marshall wins. By the way, Leahy wins all of those. Leahy wants Torch. He sports Torch in 1941 when he's an ambassador to Vichy, France. He writes to Roosevelt, says, let's invade North Africa. Leahy doesn't want to invade France in 42, 43. He basically destroys Marshall's position internally, and Leahy wants a small army. So Leahy wins all those fights. Uh, but when Truman becomes president, Truman loves Marshall. Basically, Truman's an army guy. I mean, that's a fundamental ideological thing. He's a former yes, he's colonel. A co- he former loves colonel, Marshall. So, yeah, yeah. And he basically makes Marshall, he gives Marshall every important job he can. He makes him first the, the special emissary to China, then he makes him secretary of state, and then secretary of defense. And then Eisenhower become president, who loves Marshall. And when Marshall dies, they basically create this hagiography around him. So I think it's a lot of it has to do with the, the, the politics of it, the Truman and Eisenhower cement Marshall as this extraordinary figure. And and people read back into it into the Second World War, whereas he's not dominant in the Second World War. He is very important as Truman's, when it comes to what happens in China, probably disastrously, that's Marshall. 
when the start of the Cold War, he's very important for the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan. In fact, he beats Leahy. By, when Truman's president, basically, Leahy and Marshall fight quite a lot, but in those cases, Marshall wins. He wins about China. He wins about... Um, you know, Leahy doesn't want to actually support Greece or Turkey. He wants a very restrained Cold War. He said, stay out of the Middle East. This is all Marshall pushing it. So Marshall wins under Truman. He loses under Roosevelt, but Truman comes later, and therefore we remember that. It is amazing, though, how you've... You, you know, wow. There are these these moments in the narrative of World War Two where <laughs> things just get... You know, everything that we think we knew gets turned on its head. I mean... You know, we've we've just been having big discussions yesterday about this kind of sort of declinist view of of the Western allies and particularly Britain that you know the army was rubbish, that Germans were better, and all this kind of stuff. And you know, it's just it's sort of maddening that this this stuff still has some kind of traction. Um, uh, you know, what you're saying about Leahy is just, I mean, I'm just absolutely it's incredible. It's mind-boggling, it's just fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really interesting. And I find I've got to say, I find your whole thesis on the war, and, and I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so keen to get you on is because I'm I'm such a fan. I, I mean, I, I think your book is completely brilliant. It's it's fascinating. Any book that kind of shakes it up and and makes you kind of go, hang on a minute, I've been looking at this slightly the wrong way around. For me, that's that's terrific. When I kind of read the same boring old shit that I've read a hundred times before, I kind of sort of... Uh, you know why, point? James? Because I think there's an unhealthy love of the German army by many people who don't want to admit it. <laughs> yes, that, that I would agree. So that. much of our vision of the Second World War by sort of Second World War historians and people who talk about it is driven by a love of the German army, though they would never call it love. It's a huge respect. So if there's this fabulous fighting corps you know, who can take on the world with these great-looking tanks and these amazing machine guns, and you know, that the Western allies are sort of boring because they have air cover and you know, they don't have to die. It's cheating. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's just, cheating. You know, if I were a British and American, I wouldn't want to die. And I, you know, I probably wouldn't die. <laughs> so I, you, as a British or an American soldier, why take the risk? I mean, I have to say, there's a fundamental, the American and British are fighting a modern war. And in a modern war, you limit casualties. You don't have to do you don't have to do incredibly stupid things because you should have air cover and modern artillery. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. The, the British in the Second World War do not execute a single person for desertion. You know, the, the Germans conservatively have killed 30,000, you know, conservatively. You know, it is amazing that they, they, they managed to do what they do mm-hmm. without that kind of stick and threat yeah, and all the well, rest Well, they don't have the, those those levers at their disposal, and and, and, the, and the Russians do, and, and you look, or the Soviets do, and you look at the profligate, profligate loss of life it doesn't. It doesn't work or anything, does it? It doesn't help. I mean, it, 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 it is really interesting because it, it, in your book you talk about the Battle of the Bulge, and you say that you know that that that, that it's a twenty-mile advance, and Piper's lauded as this sort of yeah. um, this sort of uh, brilliant, brilliant tank commander. There's no air cover. They're relying on the. They're literally relying on bad weather. It's primitive. Um, so that they can fight in. They can fight in in 1D rather than the 3D they've been, you know, because if you leave the leave the sea battle out, because the sea battle sort of yeah. arguably incidental, although actually it isn't because the sea battle's been won, which is why the Americans um, have the kit they can to rush up and plug gaps and all that sort of thing. Although, as you said earlier, they're short of people. But, it, 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 you know, they're literally relying on bad weather to try and, to try and advance 20 miles. And I mean, the Battle of the Bulge is a typical example of battle-centric understanding of the war not mattering in victory or defeat, but mattering as a story. The Battle of the Bulge is an extraordinary story. You know, this huge land battle, lots of narratives, you know, lots of major personalities, people dying. The amazing thing about it, of course, it's an unwinnable battle. But people only write about the time when the weather's bad. If you read any history of the Battle of the Bulge, it's basically December 16th to December 25th. Oh, yeah, the, 20, the sky is clear on the 25th. It's over. <laughs> yeah. And then, well, actually, the battle goes, the, the Americans don't get back yeah. to the German lines until well into January. But no one writes about the longer time of the, the longest time of the battle with the most casualties is the period from December 25th onwards. Yeah, but no, that's boring because they have yes, where they're winkling them and out. They're going to win, and, and the yeah, yeah, yeah. are just holding on. Yeah. So basically, it's the typical example of writing about <laughs> you know, the drama, but the drama is the fake drama. Well, and also, but also the drama is. I mean, we, we earlier on when we talked about large navy uh, raider being a big battleship guy, that is all part of Nazi PR drama as mm. a way of selling selling things politically. And 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 that once once Blitzkrieg is coined as a thing, and once you've had the Battle of France, you're into this idea of decisive yeah. moment drama battle, Sturm und Drang, basically German Nazi or Nazi conceptions of of what war is and what war delivers you and all that sort of thing, which is which is the sort of the seductive end of 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 how the wars was presented at the time. Even you know that you end up the the, the, the Allies end up thinking oh golly the german army's brilliant at everything it does and end up you end up they end up thinking and obviously that if you're if you're a soldier on the sharp end of dealing with germans who won't give up positions and all that sort of thing because that's that's what it comes down to at the end of, on the in the land is in the land battles is 
is diehards in both are in Jap- in Japan and in Germany who won't who won't give an inch. But as you point out as well in your book, the front line in Germany by night, where is the front line in 1945 in Germany? It's the whole of the country. Absolutely. The whole every, country. C- every is fr- city is in the front line. Yeah. And, and Battle of Bulger is a classic one, by the way. Probably the worst film of the Second World War, about <laughs> the Second World War. Is the, I mean, but Have you seen it, Escape it's to built, Victory? It's built on this notion of a sort of fetishization of the German army. You know, Shaw. Yep playing you know, this bleach blonde Hessler and his dashing black with the most amazing tanks that simply crush everything and forth. I mean, it's built on this notion of this amazing thing that is the German army. Uh, that, and by the way, so it seems to be fighting in Northern California. If you look at the, the terrain makes no sense. It's Spain, it. I think they made the film is in it, Spain. Yeah, yeah. So they're big open fields. And if they actually, and they run out of fuel. If they ever fought in big open fields, Allied air power, with under blue skies, Allied air power would have just destroyed them instantly and it would have been you know, without any drama whatsoever. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those where we get this fetishization of the Germans. Um, listen, before you go, I've, I've got to ask you about, you were due to be coming to the Chalk Valley History Festival, sadly no more this year, but... But, but but hopefully coming back strong in 2021. But um, you were due to come down and do a little um, thing about the Battle of Britain. And you've got an amazing theory about this, which I really, I, I've got to say, I really like, which is this idea that... So part of the narrative myth, of course, is, is that the RAF were massively outnumbered. Um, I, I mean, obviously, if you kind of sort of put the entire Luftwaffe against fighter command, obviously that figure does look a little bit outnumbered. But your point is that there's another metric by which to judge combat efficiency well, over the battle space. We, we look at, you know, when we sometimes even just adding number, you know, we add numbers, does that matter? I have a thousand aircraft, you have 800 aircraft, you know, I'm, I'm larger, you stronger. But of course, what matters in the Battle of Britain is for how long can you effectively fly in the combat area? The combat area is southern England. And when we're talking, I mean, basically from you know, a little bit over the, the, the coast of, of southern England up to London and a little bit farther, that's where most of the combat actually is. And if you're dealing with the fact that the Germans have a few more fighters, by the way, not nearly as many fighters as Churchill thought, when Churchill gives that famous speech, he's not lying. He actually thinks the Germans drastically outnumber the British. They just don't happen to. Yeah, so yeah. he's being he's making it based on yeah. faulty intelligence. From what we know, the Germans have a few hundred more fighters. Right? So you might say numerically they have a few more. However, the Germans, the ME-109 and the Spitfire are about as evenly classed aircrafts as you have in the Second World War. If you, no aircraft are exactly the same, but they're relatively close. Um, and, and what they can do. So you might think one ME 109 should approximately equal one Spitfire. But if my Spitfire takes off you know, only 20 yards from where the combat's going to occur, and the ME 109 takes off 120 miles from where that combat is going to occur, that ME 109 can only engage in combat for a few minutes before it has to turn around and go back. Whereas my Spitfire can engage in five times, six times as much operations. So by the combat multiplier of where they're fighting, each Spitfire is probably worth four to five ME-109s. Because <laughs> it can keep flying. It can keep flying for that long. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, by that, if you're saying, if you add up not the numbers of aircraft, but say the minutes that the aircraft can fly in combat operations, the British can fly many more minutes, many times minutes. And that, you would say, would, would actually, so the Battle of Britain, the British have greater effective air power over the area of battle than the Germans. But that's right there in the accounts, because the Germans will say, you know, we, 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 we met up with the bombers, we were lucky, 
you know, we had to turn back. We only had, and the, the British like, well, I got, after that, I got redirected to somewhere else. Um, we went up, we had a look for some people and then we got directed, you know, that they, they've got this, like you say, this luxury of time and, uh, and, th- and therefore, and several encounters per sortie. That's, uh, and it's, it's partly that the British don't want to undermine the, the, the few. No, myth. of course not. Yeah, because that's become ingrained so much. But actually, the under way to understand the Battle of Britain is Britain is the superior air and sea power and won it very easily. The Battle yeah, of Britain is I, without well, I drama. I agree with that entirely. Well, there's still plenty of drama. But I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting, Phil, because, you know, if you look at if you look at Battle of Britain Day, for example, you know, the biggest the biggest engagement of the day peaks around kind of three, three thirty in the afternoon in southeast London. At that time, there are 300 German aircraft that have been sent over, of which 100 are bombers and 200 are fighters. Opposing them are 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. Now, obviously, if you are one of 12 and you're attacking 300, you feel quite outnumbered. But, you know, it is the job of the historian to kind of take a step back and look at it kind of a bit more objection, you know, and um, objectively. And, you know... That is just a fact. It's, 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 there's no debate about that. There's no dispute about it. That, that is how many aircraft were involved. And, of course, 335 is not even half what Fighter Command has at that particular point. No, a Fighter Command is a far more powerful force than the Luftwaffe Fighter Command, I mean, what they can they can send over. So that, that, that's the thing about the Battle of Britain. It, no, it, basically, the Germans are the few and the British are the, are the many. Hold steady on. <laughs> no, no, really. When it comes to... And, you know, that doesn't even take into account... No, we can just hear Navy. that clipped out of context, though. Uh, that's yeah, the that's the, yeah, the the Royal Navy. We, my, the, those who understood strategic policy, like Morris Hankey, said, "Oh, we would love the Germans to try to invade." Yeah, it would have been um, great for us if the Germans had tried to invade, because it would have been such a catastrophe uh, had they tried any kind of of landing in in southern England. I mean, it probably wouldn't even have gotten out of the French ports, to be perfectly honest, and everyone would have been sunk on the way over. Uh, yeah. But you know, it, it, it's just Britain is a superior air and sea power in 1941. And, and, and it works itself out uh, in, in the battle and it works itself out quite quickly. It's just the fall of France. had just I think the fall of France had created quite a cosmic shock where the Luftwaffe played to its real strength, which was I'd say, a tactical force. Yeah, close air support, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it did close air support very effectively. And then people just sort of said, oh, my God, the Luftwaffe can do everything. And it mu- and then it must be so large because the the French collapsed in the way they did, but that that wasn't true. Well, the people primarily uh, responsible for believing that were the, was was the German High Command. The, the very yeah. first people to 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 to, mm-hmm. to take that drink that particular Kool Aid was was the Germans, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know more than anybody else. It's I mean it's again it, you come we come back to that idea that the, the even now the German the the shock of that victory in france still holds people in in its in its sort of psychic grasp doesn't it which is where i think i mean i'd, I'd say you know that the heart i actually think is a hard on people have for the german forces yeah. still is still res- so so we have talked about how battles make no difference but if there's one battle that has cast such a massive shadow it's the fall of france isn't it it's it it is actually the one i would say flaw in the non-battle centric view of the war <laughs> yeah because Presumably, the Battle of France could have is the only battle that could have gone either way. Maybe you know, had the French deployed everything differently, you know, no other battle in the Second World War could have gone any other way. I, I really don't. There's no drama in any other Second World War battle. <laughs> battle of Britain's going to go the certain way. The invasion of the Soviet Union of '41 is going to go the, the certain way. You know what happens in, in every battle is basically predetermined. 
The only battle I would argue it's not predetermined is the Battle of France in 1940. Which is why it's such a, it's still such an amazing period of just such astonishing yeah. drama. And I'm sure that the lot of the, a lot of, again, the, you're, you're absolutely right, that the, the Battle of Britain myth comes out of the fact that for this brief moment, you know, they are rabbits in headlights. The, the, the British, um, and obviously the French as well, you know, they're, they're just so shocked by what's happened that it takes them a while to kind of regain their balance and think, actually, hang on a minute. Um, and suddenly from being kind of quite confident, they are kind of, underdogs and and yeah. and they've lost sight of actually what their strength is which is air and naval power they you know even if the bef had been completely destroyed in the in in france that is no reason for throwing in the towel and yet it very probably would yes. have led to that but then but, we're in the political realm and so. and things that are politically unsustainable are, are different you know are different to strategically sustainable aren't they are, are that's why I mean, dunkirk dunkirk makes no difference in terms of whether Britain would have won or lost, it makes a difference politically whether they stay in the war. Yeah, the idea that somehow right. you know, right. taking taking those soldiers off the beaches in Dunkirk, Britain is still un, un, uninvadable, with or without Dunkirk. Yeah, you know, the German invasion still wouldn't work. It just politically meant Britain might have asked for peace, um, if had, to, but I don't even think it would have. Um, I, I I really don't think that they would have asked for peace, and I don't think Churchill could have in 1941, yeah. 44, but well wow that's been great <laughs> thank you Phil. sensational thank you thank you so much um yeah it's been enjoyable ah god yeah well i have to come on again i mean that's that's great yeah, yeah absolutely there's so much to talk about as ever and uh, yeah. you know, we didn't di- digress too heavily <laughs> no but i mean i just want to thank you Phil, for kind of you know the, the, your book has yeah. really it, it's been one of those handful of books over the last sort of 10 15 years that i've read where i've really thought wow okay this is this is a well, different way of looking that. at things so um it, it it certainly has caused some controversy but i do get angry <laughs> emails all the time for desecrating yeah, for destroying the memory of soviet dead or stuff like that so, yeah. oh well yeah, but you know the job of the, the historian is to is to try and yeah. it's to take angry objective. emails yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. you guys exactly. must get you guys must get lots of them actually Oh, yeah, you have a few. Yeah, well, Phil, thanks ever so much. That's been a really, really fascinating hour, um, or two lots of half hour, I should say. Um, thanks for coming <laughs> on, and um, we'll talk to you again yeah. soon. Great. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Thank you. Cheerio.